and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your co-host, Katie Halper, and... I'm Aaron Matte, sitting in for Matt Taibbi. For a long time. For a while, yeah. yeah. He's here. He's get, he wants you to get used to it. Stop not writing me. Anywhere. It doesn't matter. I'm not leaving. Matt is writing a book. When he finishes the book, he'll be back. Until then, you got to deal with... Uh, you can call me Aaron Matte Taibbi. How about that? Oh, I like that, Aaron Matt. Is that a compromise? Is yeah, that a compromise? Good. Okay. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. I know. I, did you just think of that on the spot? No, I, I think, uh, no, I've, I've had that pun in the works for a long time. Um, wow. I workshopped before it. before you knew about replacing Oh, yeah. Them? Well, I used to watch these full idiots every single week, and I would I would just stare at the screen and picture myself in the co-host chair, and I would just say to myself over and over, I'm Aaron Matt Taibbi. I'm Aaron Matt Taibbi. Yeah. You manifested finally, it. I manifested it. Exactly. That's great. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, we got a great show for you today. We have an amazing guest, um, Mansur Adaifi, who is someone who spent um, 14 years in Guantanamo. And we are bringing you this show because it is the 20-year anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo. He has a great book, uh, Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found in Guantanamo, that he's going to talk about. It sounds like a it's a depressing chat. And there, of course, there's a lot of very sad and disturbing stuff that we talk about, but he's such an inspiring and inspired person that it's actually an uplifting chat at the same time. No, it's a pretty incredible story. And uh, we're very fortunate to be able to talk to him and to, uh, you know, that he, first of all, survived to be able to tell the story because as he talks about other people that were with him in Guantanamo did not make it. And just the way he's been able to go through such hell and still come out of it the way he has is just, uh, it's pretty incredible. And he has a lot to say. And yeah. it's a pretty amazing conversation. So let's go through the four basic food groups. The Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? So you got Dems this week, right? I got Dems this week. And I had to go with the uh, red carpet rollout for one Dick Cheney. Speaking of Guantanamo Bay, the... Uh, Vice President under George W. Bush, who oversaw the opening of Guantanamo, the kidnapping of so many people like our guest Mansoor, the torture of them, and of course, the invasion of Iraq and other crimes. But because it was this week the anniversary of January 6th, which in the eyes of uh, many Democrats these days, it seems to be uh, a crime on the level of 9-11, uh, Dick Cheney was welcomed at the Capitol with open arms because he's criticized Trump and has basically joined the neocon brigade of Republicans who don't like Trump, not because they care about his racism or his sexism or the fact that he um, broke the Iran nuclear deal and almost started a war with Iran and many other horrible things that Trump did. They don't like Trump because they don't think he's a suitable steward of the war machine that they've helped build. And Dick Cheney has been a one of the key figures uh, behind that. And Dick Cheney was welcomed with open arms at the Capitol this week. And as a headline in the uh, Washington Post put it, Dick Cheney returns to the House and receives a warm welcome for, dot, 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 from Democrats. And uh, that's what it was. There was a parade of Democrats going up to Dick Cheney to shake his hand on the House floor, all because uh, he is joining his daughter, Liz, in standing up to the three-hour riot that has been turned into one of the worst things that happened to the U.S. since 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. And for rehabilitating this unrepentant war criminal 
who, as Matt Taibbi points out in a great article this week on his Substack, has done far bigger damage to the world and U.S. democracy than even Donald Trump. For that, I say that Democrats suck. And I have a bonus part of Democrats suck this week. It's related to January 6th. It's a tweet from Alex Rorty. And he talked about attending some focus groups where the topic of January 6th came up. He says, watch two focus groups with moderate voters last night put on by a liberal group. Moderator asked first group, five women, about January 6th. A long pause followed before one of the women asked what he meant, invoking January 6th didn't immediately mean anything, even days after the anniversary. So I just thought this was so funny because, you know, for four years, what did Democrats talk about when Trump was in office? It was basically Russia, Russia, Russia. Then they pivoted to Ukraine and how we needed to arm Ukraine. And if we didn't, our country was going to be invaded by Russia. No matter what you think about the Trump-Russia story, I think it's a safe bet that Russia and Ukraine are not the top concerns of the average American when they wake up in the morning, right? I think that's a fair bet, no matter where you stand on Trump or Russia or not. So now what do Democrats do after you know Trump is no longer in office, the Russia thing didn't pan out? Now, basically, they're talking, if you turn on MSNBC or CNN, it's January 6th all the time. So finally, they have here's a window into an occasion where this is put to actual voters to see how they respond to this nonstop Democratic fixation. And um, invoking January 6th didn't immediately mean anything, even days after the anniversary. And the tweet thread goes on. The conversation didn't get much better from there for Dems in either focus group. Once the convo got going, it was clear January 6th hadn't been memory hold by the first group. But one woman said flat out it wasn't something she worried about anymore compared to other concerns. And two others, after agreeing how awful the attack was, said they thought Biden and Democrats had gone too far in the way they talked about last. They talked about it last week on the anniversary. One of the women said she thought that they had over embellished it. You don't say. So maybe talking nonstop about a riot at the Capitol and comparing it to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, where thousands of people died, is maybe over embellishing. And I just think it's such a funny window into just how disconnected Democrats are from the concerns of, you know, the voters they're trying to reach right. in order to win and what they instead choose to focus on. Right. And I think it's an important point that you made, which is that, you know, di there's a lot of disagreement over how important and how significant and what it signifies when it comes to January 6th or Russia gate. But what I think anyone fair minded can acknowledge is that the disproportionate energy poured into that is not uh, justifiable. Hence why Democrats suck. Yeah. Hence why Democrats suck. Yeah. And another, you know, we, we have to bring this up. Democrats suck because Gitmo is still open. Yes. And they're meanwhile honoring one of the uh, top architects of right. the uh, global so-called global war on terror that caged and tortured so many people there, right. Dick Cheney. And, and they're doing so in the name of trying to defend democracy. Right. It's ridiculous. Yes. They are honoring a war criminal and his spawn. And his spawn. Yeah. <laughs> so for Republicans suck, I have uh, something that's, you know, more more of a cultural touchstone uh, this is this guy is not an elected official but that's fine we do this for republican suck or democrat suck a lot i just wanted to show uh this clip of tucker carlson 
So yesterday was Sunday. You may have found yourself on the couch, idly flipping around the TV dial. And if you flipped far enough, you could have had the shock of your life. Michael Jackson was on Face the Nation. Now, to be clear, this wasn't video of Michael Jackson performing his hit songs in the 1990s. This appeared to be a living version of the international pop star that news reports claim died of a drug OD more than a dozen years ago. And yet, despite those claims, there he was, fully, undeniably Michael Jackson, talking on television. How can that be? Honestly, we have no idea. We're not theologians here. This is merely a news program. We can only show you what we saw. Here it is. There's nothing more important for us to do than protect our Constitution and our democracy. What the Republicans are doing across the country is really a, a legislative continu continuation of what they did on January 6th, which is to undermine our democracy. See, Michael Jackson, that was him. No Billie Jean, apparently he's given up singing, now he's telling lies about politics. Same man. If you've ever seen Michael Jackson, you cannot forget the face. Though, admittedly, he's had a lot of work done since we saw him last. Okay, so that was just Tucker Carlson really putting a lot of work into setting up a joke with very little payoff. I mean, I'm not a Nancy Pelosi fan. She's had a lot of work done. She looks nothing like Michael Jackson. So the joke is just him making fun of Nancy Pelosi's appearance, that's it? Yeah. That's just so, I mean, Wilson, you found this, actually. You, you flagged this for me. What do you think about it? Why I, do you I love that he just, he took so long to set it up. And then even after it finishes, he doesn't drop the joke. He still goes with it. And it's right. just so over the top. It's so, it's such a bad joke. I mean, this guy. So he's just making fun of her. He's just making fun yeah. of her appearance. That's it. There's yeah. no, there's no. Yeah, nothing goal. more. No, I was okay. expecting. No I was substance. like, wait, is she going to say like, I'm bad. I'm bad. You know it. Or is like. The way you make me, I thought there was going to be some pun. Like, yeah, no. as it stands, as it stands, that's one of the worst joke attempts I've ever seen. Yeah. It's just, it's so juvenile. It's so um, juvenile. And there's nothing, I mean, doesn't he have people who, do, do you, maybe he's just surrounded by a bunch of yes men. No one was like, Tucker, that's not actually that funny. And there's no uh, resemblance between the two of them. Uh, you may want to cut this bit, but Tucker, hey, we'll tell it to you, we'll give it to you straight here. Useful idiots. You should workshop your jokes with us. I mean, it's first of all, by the way, it's tough to pull off a good Michael Jackson joke these days yeah, at all. Right. I mean, yeah, D Dave Chappelle does it. He's has some great bits in his specials. Chris Rock, but Tucker Carlson. Sorry, man. No, no yeah, sorry. this one, this one did not fly. And and then you're trying to um, make fun of a of a woman's looks. It's just ugh. yeah. Who, do, who does? Who still does that? Yeah, who still does that? Yeah. I mean, other he cares about being sexist and ageist because. You know, he revels in in rejecting those woke uh, labels or the he rejects the problematization of those things, I'm sure. But yeah. uh, still, it's just a forget even that aside, like it's just stupid. It's just the fail. You're just not that trend. I think he's he's not that funny. So he, he when he thinks of something that he thinks of as funny, it's like he really he really tickles himself. It really tickles him. Stick to your whatever baiting. Six year really other to the really good content you provide when you're serious. That's Republican suck. Tuck. Republicans suck. With Tuck. I have isn't that weird this week? You know, fusing, you know, two different world worlds, two very important wor worlds are, you know, our livestock and uh, you know, virtual reality, the metaverse, 3D. 
uh, headline in the Washington in the New York Post says cows stuck indoors for winter are getting virtual reality goggles to feel like they're outside. Uh, bring some innovation to the uh, awful meat industry. Uh, it says cows poop cows cooped up for the winter are being fitted with virtual reality goggles. So they think they are outside in a summer field and the bamboozled bovines appear to be happier and producing more milk. This could be encouraging, uh, Katie, for Mark Zuckerberg as he uh, expands the metaverse. Yeah, you're right. To you know, know that cows are happier and producing more milk as they enter uh, the realm of virtual reality. Snaps of the experiment have been amusing film buffs on social media where they have been compared to shots from sci-fi classic The Matrix. The movies show mankind living in a simulated reality while machines use their bodies as energy sources. That's right. Keanu Reeves stars as Neo, given a choice between taking a red pill to reveal the truth or a blue pill to forget the revelations. And one fan wrote, you take the short grass, the story ends. You wake up in the pasture and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the long grass, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the human hole goes. And then we have some, uh, we have some Matrix cow puns like the matrix re-uttered and sorry sorry the mootrix re-uttered oh, and the mootrix ruminations brilliant it's brilliant stuff oh the poor cows they're so cute and there's an image of one wearing these goggles i, I wonder what kind of psychological studies they can for for humans they can take this uh well rest assured mark, mark zuckerberg's all over it right I mean, he, he wants that data i wonder though if when you're you know when you're ordering meat from now on you know how you can order like you know organic beef only like yeah. whether this will become an option if you only want to eat virtual reality right inf exactly. uh, infused I only eat cows virtual reality yeah. infused uh, yeah. cows yeah that should become an option yeah this could be a whole new whole new field of uh of the bovine industry yeah a whole new pasture a whole new pasture <laughs> i mean that's so sad because it just reminds us of how cows have feelings so they really need to be treated better things are so bad for cows that even virtual reality is is an improvement yeah yeah that's dark that's, that's dark. dark yeah that yeah. just verged into isn't that terrible well we're, we as we always we often do on the show we kind of play with boundaries and the the terrible and weird often overlap and intersect because we're an intersectional show yes um so i'm gonna go speaking of which i'm gonna go to a isn't that terrible which is kind of an isn't that weird Ah, screw it. LAPD cops hunted Pokemon instead of responding to robbery. Officers 2017 hunt for Snorlax recorded by in-car system. Court upholds firing. So this is a story. This is very interesting. But before I get into the story, I got to ask something. How is this game played? This Pokemon Go searching for Snorlax played? So in real life, there are Pokemon in different places and you can see through your phone on the app where they are. So you can see that, oh, over on First Ave, there is a Pikachu. And so you go and you can actually, and you throw one of your Pokeballs at it like they do in Pokemon and you can catch it and then you can collect. So it's in the, in the show, they actually collect Pokemon. And so you can do that in real life. And that way, like Hillary Clinton says, you can Pokemon go to the polls. That was amazing when, when she said, I don't know about, I don't know who invented Pokemon Go, but I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. 
And that's why she won. I mean, that's that was the key, that, that yeah. was the key to her success in that's 2016 when success, she swept yeah. the election and gave us four years of an incredible presidency. And, um, you know, kudos to her for having the grace to step down and let Joe Biden take take the right. home after, you know, her great run. So here's the thing. I just needed to get that uh, background so so that people would understand this. So a California appeals court has upheld the firings of two Los Angeles police department officers who failed to respond to a robbery in progress and instead went searching for Snorlax in the Pokemon Go augmented reality game. And they were being recorded by a digital in-car video system, DICVS, when they decided to catch a Pokemon after not responding to a robbery on Saturday, April 15, 2017, according to the California Court of Appeal ruling issued Friday. A board of rights found the officers, quote, guilty on multiple counts of misconduct and, quote, based in part on the, quote, recording that captured petitioners willfully abdicating their duty to assist a commanding officer's response to a robbery in progress and playing a Pokemon mobile phone game while on duty, the ruling said. The, these these two cops tried to push back, saying that the camera shouldn't be used against them because that's not what they're meant to record. Um, but that didn't stand. And at first they lied. So they were investigated. They were asked about what they were doing during this the robbery when they had radio called to respond to a robbery. They denied, like, first they said that they didn't hear it, but now we know that that's not true. After communications made a second attempt to contact petitioners, the petitioners are the two cops who were found guilty, to contact petitioners, Officer Lozano asked if they should, quote, ask communications if there is a message, end quote. Officer Mitchell replied, it's up to you, whatever you think. I don't want them to think we're not paying attention to the radio, end quote. Lozano responded, ah, screw it, end quote. Petitioners made no attempt to respond over the radio when their unit was called. They, instead of going towards the robbery scene, they moved backwards through the alley and turned away from the mall, the mall where the robbery was occurring. Officer Mitchell alerted Lozano that Snorlax just popped up at 46 and Limer. After noting that Limer doesn't go all the way to 46, Lozano responded, oh, you know what I can do? I'll go down 11th and swing up on Crenshaw. I know that way I can get to it. For approximately the next 20 minutes, the uh, DICVS captured petitioners discussing Pokemon as they drove to different locations where the virtual creatures apparently appeared on their mobile phones. On the way to the Snorlax location, Officer Mitchell alerted Officer Lozano that a, quote, Togetic just popped up, noting it was on Crenshaw just south of 50th. After Mitchell apparently caught the Snorlax exclaiming, got him, petitioners agreed to go get the Togetic and drove off. When their car stopped again, the DICVs, uh, CBS recorded Mitchell saying, don't run away, don't run away, while Lasana described how he buried it and ultra-balled the Togetic before announcing, got him. Mitchell advised he was still trying to catch it, adding, holy crap, man, this thing is fighting the crap out of me. Eventually, Mitchell exclaimed, holy crap, finally, apparently in reference to capturing the Togetic, and he remarked, the, guy, the guys are going to be so jealous. So, Wilson, let, tell me what your thoughts are as someone who knows what these things mean. Is this a game? Is this just a social media moment? What are they doing here? Well, I'm I'm fully on the side of the cops. It's a Snorlax, Katie. You, you're gonna you're gonna give up a Snorlax. You you know more than anyone. You don't a, a Pikachu maybe, but not a Snorlax. Aaron, what do you think? I see. The thing is, I don't. I don't understand actually what a Snorlax is. Yeah. Neither do I. I don't. But then they should go out like heroes and just own that they were looking for that mythical creature, which they said. That's what I don't get. They said right. they, they were should going... be the kings in jail. Yeah, 
They insisted they did so both as part of an extra patrol and to chase this mythical creature. So if they were chasing this mythical creature, that's what they were doing. Even if it's not advertised as a game, it's a game, right? Oh, yeah, totally. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So you know what? I'm torn because uh, part of me likes this type of misconduct from cops. Like if all all police misconduct could be limited to playing uh, Pokemon, that would be great. If that's what their lies were about. Also, you know, I, I think cops probably, you know, maybe instead of fighting crime, we could distract. They could actually do less damage if they were just playing Pokemon. It's an, isn't that terrible. It's an example of real cowardice, I think. For all that funding that the police get, I wonder if there should be some money allocated for, you know, Pokemon Go addiction issues. You're right. You know, You're right. what if what if this is a, you know, widespread problem among all police forces? Like right. this is, you know, and you what if we really should add funding for military grade equipment in the Pokemon universe? That would help. That's that would another, always help. Right. They military feel threatened. Yes. They feel safer in going after the Pokemon. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a good callback to last week, Matt, when we talked about how I think it was for Republicans suck, how there was a call for military great equipment for the police in Virginia to help fight snow, help fight snow, help yeah. fight Snorkelax. <laughs> is that what did I get the name right? Snor Snorlax. Snorlax. Yeah. yeah. Well, be funny is they've been engaged in a high speed chase. After some a suspect and they. We're like, oh, just one second. Let me just do this. Let me go down the street instead. There is something still pretty cute about the story. The idea of right. these two cops being so into Pokemon Go. I mean, this is not like they're like, you know, dealing drugs on the side or firearms. Right. They're they're right. playing Pokemon Go. And that's right. There's something charming about that. If only that was the thing, the egregious behavior cops engaged yeah. in. So that's my isn't that terrible? Or maybe isn't that adorable? It, it is not adorable. Yeah. yeah. Terrible slash adorable. I mean, I'll throw in a terrible, which is that Eric Adams, this also is Democrat suck, and this is more serious than our terribles, but I feel like I'd be remiss to not mention the fact that um, the landlord, you know, we, we now know 17 people were killed in a fire in the Bronx on Sunday caused by a malfunctioning space heater that sparked a fire. The, the landlord was part of Eric Adams' transition team. And they, instead of, you know, talking about the lack of safe, affordable housing, they're blaming the tenants. They're blaming the the tenants for having on a heater and for not closing their doors when actually the doors were supposed to be self-closing. There were heating issues in the apartment, which is mm -hmm. why they were using that that space heater in the first place. So, but that's the really scary part, I think, also that that the landlord of the building is on Eric Adams' transition team. That's an isn't that terrible? And Democrats suck. Unfortunately, there's a lot of sucky Democrats and a lot of terrible. Yeah out there and they often go together yeah so that's it anything else any other stories you want to talk about from this week there's the whole russia ukraine thing and uh it looks like there are talks ongoing between the u.s and russia to resolve that i'm sorry to, to disappoint many pundits in the u.s but it doesn't look like there's going to be a war at least for now and i know that's a hard thing for people to swallow cold war advocates neocons in washington really want conflict for some reason right. to break out between the world's top nuclear powers they really want the us to um you know escalate its uh, military support to ukraine on top of the already massive amount of weapons that go there but it looks like for now there's not going to be a war so i just want to express my condolences to neocons and their allies everywhere right. at the uh, at this unfortunate 
uh, extension of diplomacy, though, although I'm not optimistic that anything will be resolved. In the words of the Washington Post, they, they interviewed this anonymous U.S. government official who specializes in Russia. And this official said that basically uh, they think that Russia is interested in real dialogue. And Russia basically wants to see if the U.S. is willing to accept any constraints on U.S. power. And that's what, to me, this is about. It's not about whether Putin's going to conquer Ukraine, because I don't think Putin wants to do that. Why would he? Uh, and if he had wanted to do that, he could have done that by now, you know, take over the parts of Ukraine that identify with Russia and the Donbass and that are fighting the Ukrainian government. I think it's about, you know, Russia basically trying to see if the U.S. will stop using Ukraine as a bullet stopper, as a uh, as a proxy in this Cold War, new Cold War confrontation with Russia. And that would entail basically pledging to stop expanding NATO to Russia's borders, including uh, by uh, pledging not to admit Ukraine and to not position U.S. weapons in countries like Ukraine. And we'll see if the U.S. can accept any of that. And if they do, I think it would be um, a good thing for world peace. But that would be a bad thing for weapons contractors and neocons in Washington. So we'll see if right. even if even something approaching that is, is acceptable to, to Biden. But what's funny is, is that right now, too, there's this effort to stop this pipeline. Uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline going from uh, Russia to Germany and the rest of Europe. And Ted Cruz right now has a measure that wants to just impose, new, reimpose sanctions on uh, on Russia, Germany, and anybody else who, who takes part in this pipeline. Uh, and the Biden administration is actually lobbying Congress against it because, you know, for the rest of Europe, if this goes through, it would be a nightmare because it would basically shut off this vital source of gas that comes from Russia to the rest of Europe, and people would suffer. Uh, heating costs would rise, and people would freeze. And so Germany is basically begging the U.S. not to do it, but people like Ted Cruz in Washington are so hell-bent on confrontation with Russia, so that's all they care about. And the irony of Biden lobbying against this is that, you know, again, this is another case where Biden has a overall a softer stance on Russia than the Trump administration, which we were told from the Biden camp and others for four years was doing Russia's bidding because Trump was a Putin puppet. Right. In reality, Trump and his administration were hawks and dangerous hawks on Russia, ratcheting up confrontation. This is one more example of Biden doing something that if Trump had done, that would be seen as more evidence that he really is being blackmailed and controlled by Putin. Right. If you look at that, and that's our Russiagate nugget of the of the week. If you want to tune back, I got I got I got one for you every single week because um, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and let's just without any further ado, let's go to the great interview we have lined up for you today. This week marks the 20 year anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo. And we have an amazing guest who's talking to us, um, Mansur Adaifi. He's one of the first prisoners uh, who was brought to Guantanamo. He's the author of Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found at Guantanamo. He was held for over 14 years without charges as an enemy combatant. He was released to Serbia in 2016, where he still struggles to make a new life for himself and to shed the stigma of being a suspected terrorist. You can follow Mansour on Twitter at M-A-N-S-O-O-R-A-D-A-Y-F-I. And you can find out more about him at his website, MansourAdaifi.com. Welcome, Mansour. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, too, for having me today. 
And um, of course, this week is a solemn anniversary. It's been 20 years since the um, opening of, of Gitmo. Um, and you wrote a very moving book about your experiences there. Uh, Don't Forget Us, uh, Lost and Found in Guantanamo. Wanted to know before we got into your book, which is really excellent, uh, if you could talk about the the group of, uh, of Guantanamo prisoners that you're part of, there are seven of you who published an open letter calling on Joe Biden to close um, Guantanamo and to enact an eight-point plan that you came up with. So can you talk about what that plan is? Yeah. Uh, first of all, before we talk about uh, the eight-point plan, let us give a little introduction to uh, Guantanamo. As you know, Guantanamo, this is yesterday was the 20th anniversary of uh, Guantanamo, 7,306 days. Today is 7,307 7, uh, days today. So basically, Guantanamo was created and established outside uh, of the of the justice system, housed around 800 men, uh, 50 nationalities, uh, 20 languages. Uh, the youngest detainee was only a few months old, the oldest one was 105 years old. 20 years uh, of uh, uh, indefinite detention, uh, 20 years of, of torture, uh, abuses, 20, 20 years of injustice, 20 years, uh, 20 years of violation the, of the basic human uh, rights. So basically, people or uh, men at Guantanamo, they have no right, they have no access to any uh, justice. Now, four administration work uh, have been uh, since the opening of Guantanamo. You know, George W. Bush, the one who established Guantanamo. Then uh, President uh, Barack Obama, who wanted to close the detention but failed. Then uh, Trump, who promised to keep it uh, open, and he did. And uh, now we are in with uh, Mr. Uh, President Biden, who said he will close it. And we are still waiting to see some kind of kind of tangible uh, steps. So uh, uh, last year, when after uh, Biden was elected, we sent a letter uh, signed by uh, a letter by uh, six former Guantanamo detainees suggesting a roadmap for the closure of Guantanamo. Based on our uh, uh, experience, based on our research, because I have been researching uh, Guantanamo for the last few years, it was part of my gradu graduation degree, bachelor degree in management. My thesis was about rehabilitation and reintegration of former Guantanamo detainees into social life and the labor market. So we sat and we talked about what the best way to close Guantanamo, because it's a matter of will. If they wanted to close Guantanamo, it can be closed, but unfortunately, Guantanamo turned to be a political game between the uh, Republicans and the Democrats. And, and it's not about humanity, it's not about uh, justice, it's not about the prisoner there. It's about the, the political game that they can get uh, from it. Mostly the Democrats hesitant to do it because it might fire back or sometime, you know, the uh, Congress uh, made many obstacles for the closure of uh, Guantanamo. But until yesterday, we, uh, we received the news that uh, at least 18 detainees or, or prisoners have been cleared for release. And so far, we, uh, uh, Biden administration have released only one uh, prisoner to Morocco uh, last year. And I hope, you know, 18 have been cleared. This is the right step toward the closure of Guantanamo. People watching this or listening to this are going to be hearing, a lot of people are going to be hearing your story for the first time. So I wanted to just I ask you to go back and take us how you landed in Guantanamo. You were born and raised in Yemen and you went to Afghanistan to conduct some research. And that 
landed you in Guantanamo. So if you could go back and tell us that story. I am Mansour Baifi. Sorry, I am Mansour Baifi, uh, former Guantanamo detainee, a Yemeni citizen, and now I am in where. Basically, I raised in was raised in uh, in rural uh, village in Yemen in the, on the mountain. A very conservative uh, family and a tribe uh, society. Is it like at a tribe society, as you know? Now, now in, in Yemen, still like the tribe. Uh, System still exists, strongly still exists. At age of when I finished my high uh, secondary school, I moved to the city to finish my high school. And from there, I started interacting with the world basically, because where I live in the, in the village, we have no electricity, no running water, no uh, any kind of uh, basic infrastructure there. It's just basically tribe society. So the city was a new world. From that, I started, you know, uh, finished my high school, and I was really interested in learning, in uh, studying computer science. Although there was, at that time, there was no any kind of uh, education about technology in our education system. It's corrupted, and still it is. So it was, we had only one uh, private uh, university about uh, called University of uh, Science and Technology. And it was really hard because it's really expensive. Part time, I used to study as one of the uh, institute beside my high school. I studied uh, history and uh, like Arabic language. The head of the uh, institute, he had like one of the most influential characters at that time. So uh, he used to give some recommendation letters to students to go study in Gulf countries, like in Qatar or Saudi Arabia, other countries, and they. You can get like free scholarship to study there. So I tried with him. Uh, 2002, you know, and by the end of 2000, I think, yeah, in 1999, 1998, 1999, there was really a strong presence of Al-Qaeda, especially when Osama bin Laden, uh, at that time, there was like a vacuum in the media and it was a lot of attention to Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and the, the fight, as, as you said, the fight between Osama bin Laden and the United States. Uh, most people are talking about 9-11 or aftermath, but they don't actually talk about what happened before 9-11. It is really important to talk about what happened before 9-11 to understand why 9-11 happened in the first place and what, the, what, what, what caused that to happen. And so basically, one of the things that happened in Yemen at that time, the attack on U.S. school. And This is the USS Cole. This is a U.S. warship that was docked in the... Yeah. Port of Yemen, yes. attacked by uh, a suicide bomber. Yeah, it was also Al Qaeda, and at that time it bring a lot of attention to Yemen. And uh, so uh, the 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 head of the institute, he was one of the uh, authors and one of the most influential, Sheikh Mubarak He was asked by Saudi government and Yemeni government to write a book about the new uh, groups, Al Qaeda, Taliban, and those groups, because you know from the government that they wanted to stop this uh spread so he wanted to try to book about it but at that time as you know in our countries we had no internet there is no access to media no access no and basically if you need to do, conduct research you have to travel you have to collect information books and everything you need to the bubble so i was sent as a research assistant to uh with other uh men to do some kind of like research about in afghanistan about al-qaeda and taliban and other groups and to know more about that people because it's just a normal research 
And the promise to you was that if you did this, uh, this would help you get into university, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, it was like, it was my dream to finish my uh, college in computer science and university. And because uh, I really love the, 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 the life in the city and the world, because when you live your entire life in a, in a small, uh, tiny, uh, real uh, uh, village away from everything, it became like when you when I arrived in the city, wow, this is the life, you know, electricity, building, cars, and like everything. I was fascinated by computers because when I, uh, during my time, there was like advertisement giving courses in, uh, in computer, you know, all the like those. And uh, so I saved some money and I want to take one of the, one of the course in uh, those, uh, <laughs> but it was it was expensive. I took really like it was like twice a week, you know, one hour. But you know, spent a lot. Like I, I couldn't afford to buy a computer, but I I couldn't wait to go there and just sit in front of that machine, like listen. And it was like fascinating when you listen and working on those uh, learning about it, and you know, especially when you go to those different programs. So yeah, yeah, I was like, this is my dream. So it was like, was so heavy. It's going to take a few months, get back and travel also. So also I wanted to travel, to be honest, to know more about the world. I'm like curious, energetic, uh, hyperactive. So one right in Afghanistan, we started doing our research, interviewing, researching. And, and when I arrived in Afghanistan, I was like shocked and surprised, you know. <laughs> I arrived in Pakistan, it's like also different world. When I arrived in Afghanistan, I felt, wow, I couldn't believe, like you feel you live in the mid-centuries. Literally, the building, the people, the way of clothing, you know, uh, the hardship of life, you can see it in the people, on the people face. So the only thing that connects you to the future, <laughs> the cars, the moving cars, <laughs> other than this, it's just, it's like different era, like different time. So uh, when I arrived in Kabul, I could see the scars of the civil war that left the country torn down buildings, you know, uh, uh, damaged buildings everywhere. Then one day we were in the restaurant, we heard that there was there was an attack in the United States, airplanes flew into a tower. I mean, someone told me it's 110. It's a big problem. I said like, oh, okay, uh, in Yemen, we had 100, we had like 25 uh, floors, but we ended up even allowed to go near that building. It's like, it's owned by one of the private, uh, uh airplane uh, companies so we just you, you saw it but I, I never felt oh what 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 does it mean to be in like even like 10 building uh, floors or something so we didn't pay much at to what uh, to what happened because you know in afghanistan there was no any kind of like media or tvs and that media that happened outside of afghanistan people even didn't didn't feel it because you know, it's like, as I told you, you feel in different air of the world. I was staying at one of the charity organization who work in for Saudi government work, uh, like as a charity for logistic, providing some uh, kind of like relief support for the, you know, like there is severe poverty in Afghanistan. Uh, then after 9-11, the, the charity, the head, of, the head of charity received some kind of instruction from Saudi Arabia that who should, he should liquid everything and leave as soon as possible. And uh, so basically my one of the guys I was with, with his someone, so we, are, we, have, we have to leave and we're going to liquid everything to send all the stuff we have to the hospitals, to the people who needs, we are we'll leaving. Our, he, I, he was visiting uh, one of the 
Qunduz uh, city, like you have staff for the hospital there. Qunduz, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he said, we cannot wait two weeks for uh, airplane because it's like every two weeks, the, uh, the flight. And I said, we, we can't totally uh, take a few hours to get there by the car. And it was a new car, blue Toyota, beautiful car. We load everything into the, the car and we, we, uh, we uh, travel. <laughs> and we were ambushed by one of the world lords because after 9-11, there was like switching loyalties between the, you know, because United States and its allies starting buying people with money and so on. As you know, in those societies, people are people switching loyalties for money and, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a process of war. So we were, they were interested in our car basically from the beginning because they saw a beautiful, a new car and this is our car now. This is my car, the warlord, this is my car, it's not your car. And they knew they knew that person who worked for years for the church organization, and they said, "Okay, now uh, we are going to let you go." Then uh, we were sold to another warlord, uh, warlord, who, who sold us to the American for bounty money. That when American came to Afghanistan, they threw flyers offering a large bounty of money if anyone who can bring any foreigners, especially Arabs. So I was sold as Al Qaeda commander, Nala and insider. Then I was taken to the black site, 1819 in the black site, basically. And uh, I was interrogated to be an uh, Egyptian general who, uh, you know, money laundering, traveling, uh, planning uh, Nairobi under some attacks and a lot of things. I admitted to everything because under the torture, no sleep, no beating, no food, cold, naked, hanging. I mean, it's one of the worst experience. But the problem was I didn't have the details to give them. And these are, these are Americans torturing yeah, yeah. you and interrogating you, and they're asking yeah. you, they think you're an Egyptian commander of Al-Qaeda. Yes, then, yes, basically. And, and I was so... And at first, did you, at first, did you deny being the person who they were accusing you of? Yeah, of course. My friend told me when he said the Americans are like, don't worry, everything will be okay because Americans uh, are here. And they understand, you know, they, they are not like those savages or like, especially when we talk about it and some Arab countries. He said, no, they are not like Arab savages. They knew who we are and they can, then let's just go. We have nothing to do with, it, with anything. Where was your this, friend from who said that? Saudi, basically, yes. Uh. And um, when we end up in the hand of the Americans, it was one of the worst experience, you know, and end up like, you know, though when they, when the, especially when the CIA came, they had no information about the people in Afghanistan, no profiles, no photos, no names, nothing. And anyone can suspect them, anything. Anyone is a suspect, you know, basically. And as you know, like war on terror, it just fired back. We, it's war of terror. And uh, Bush administration misused and abused none of it. Uh, so after the black site, I was shipped, I was uh, transferred to Kandahar detention again. Then another wave of interrogation, another people, many many countries, you know, many French, uh, British, uh, different countries, different delegation, different interrogators. I mean, then to Guantanamo, another story. This is my story. How in short words, I mean, the process we read the book is just different here. Yeah. And can I just ask one question before the next? You go on to the next chapter which is that you were, um, America was offering money for people who were allegedly involved in Al-Qaeda or, uh, or part of the Taliban. Um, but there was no, was there any verification process for this or, or all people had to do was like word of mouth and say, that's the guy, that's a bad guy. No, I mean, like, uh, 
if you go back to the uh, Seton Hall University report, ECLU and other reports that 86% of the prisoners in Guantanamo were either mistaken identity or sold for bounty. They, they American didn't do any kind of like verification or because they have no idea. They have no profile, no names. They have wanted this for like around 25 or something. Other than this, you know, uh, if I told you that they were going to talk about Guantanamo, the youngest detainee was only three months old. The oldest was 105 years old. So basically, and those men who were uh, brought to Guantanamo, they weren't in the battlefield, like fighting and holding gun slogan. They were brought from different parts of the world. We are talking about over 50 nationalities, 20 languages spoken. People were brought from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, uh, Bosnia, Mauritania, United Arab Emirates, Yemen, Africa. Many countries handed those men either for money or for cooperation when they United States, because as you know, uh, George W. Bush, he said, either, either with us or with the terrorists. Basically, he divided, like, if you are not on our side, you're in our, you're, you're our enemy. So, and uh, they, they, they launched what they call a global war on terror, and anyone who can be suspected can, can, uh, can be detained in prison, and, you know, so what happened, that what happened, like, like many, many cases, so, um, the majority of the detainees were uh, weren't in Afghanistan, even because Guantanamo. It's, it's a unique case. It's not like people were in the battlefield, they holding guns and fighting. And so, no, it's not, that's not the case. You know, they were bringing like a bad suspect or stir suspect and anyone. And people took a chance, especially for some countries in Pakistan, Afghanistan, other countries. Millions of money. Who can reject that? You know. Even if there is, I think the previous, the former uh, Pakistani prime minister, he wrote a book, I think on the front line or something about how they, uh, Pakistan handed Arabs who were in, uh, foreigners who were in Pakistan or around like exchange were over 400 million dollars because Pakistan needed that money. Uh, basically this is the case. So you were saying earlier uh, that at first you were denying being involved with Al Qaeda or any terror group, but eventually, the torture just continued that eventually you just started telling them what they wanted to hear? Of course, under the torture, I mean, they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. This is the problem. You know, this is if you look at the photos I sent you by 2000, the beginning when they, when the Carol uh, Rosenberg, the reporter who worked on Guantanamo cases since 2002, when she compared the files, when we arrived at Guantanamo, uh, they classified me as Al-Qaeda, uh, 9-11 inside Al-Qaeda commander, uh, the commander of the 55th Brigade <laughs> by 2016. Who's supposed to, by the way, be a, who's supposed to, by the way, be a middle-aged man, right? And you're uh, yes. 19, 20 years old. Yes, I was 19. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> by 2016, they said, actually, it is, it is unclear if he actually joined Al-Qaeda. And none of Al-Qaeda members or Al-Qaeda leaders recognize him as a member of Al-Qaeda. And we had a long argument and fight with the government about this. I said, either you see he's in Al-Qaeda or he's Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Basically, they know we, I wasn't Al-Qaeda. I wasn't involved with any kind of like, uh, terrorism activity or attacks or any kind of affiliate with any groups. But simply they said, literally, we cannot say we uh, detain an innocent man for around 15 years. Basically, also, uh, they... <laughs> If they if they don't like you, they won't release you. If they don't like you, they will never clear you. My behavior within the camp, they said I, I, I behaved uh, 
ironically, and they do like my behavior because hunger strike, fighting, resisting, you know, fighting stuff, the torture, the, the, the interrogation, and, and so on. And it's just, it's just, I think any, any of you, any man, any woman, any uh, free person would do the same. If you end up in a place indefinitely detained, tortured, abused, everything around you designed to break you. And where I came from as a tribe man, I, we live with, by our code, you know, we have, we live with our values, faith, uh, you know, we have uh, by our tribe code, you know, trans transparency, honor, courage, uh, hospitality, sacrifice, this is our life. So I was behaving the way I was raised. They took that behavior as instigation, instigating as, they even accused us to be Al-Qaeda cell operating within Guantanamo, believe it or not. And the problem was we are, our argument with them, what you do here is wrong. And the way we re, we just reacting to whatever you thought us. And if you react, if you say, ah, oh, I'm in pain or scream, oh, you are a bad person, you're, you're a terrorist. So when, you, when I look at that way behavior, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you did. In their eyes, by default, every Muslim is a terrorist. So it's the way it is. Even now, we still feel it that way because, as you see, how uh, George W. Bush and his species and the administration misused and abused nine of them, basically. Now we are talking about twenty years after what they score war and terror. There, there is no justice for nine of them. There is no justice for they, this. They. They abuse American justice system. Today we are talking about Guantanamo because it is the way how uh, those people abuse American justice system by fighting for Guantanamo. We are actually fighting also for American justice system. And uh, Guantanamo is uh, staying in American uh, history and uh, uh, pol uh, uh, policy. So it's been 20 years since Gitmo was open. You were among the first wave of prisoners there. Tell us about how you got there, what you remember about your journey to Gitmo from the CIA black site. You know, <laughs> arriving at Guantanamo, I remember that moment when they took the hold of my head. It was a, a journey of 40, year, uh, 40 hours on the air from plane to another. They had a a sign around my neck beat me because anyone who deemed to be big fish, what they call it, they were treated even differently even in the journey. The journey was also part of the interrogation process. They, you know, they keep us, uh, they keep, they used to keep us as much as, as long as in the air and to keep you disoriented, you know, uh, confused. So when you arrived, you are full of, he uh, of fear and confused and no sleep, no eat, no food. You cannot use the toilet. So when you go to the interrogation, they can they think, oh, this is the point is going to throw everything. Uh, when I arrived at Guantanamo, the journey was tough. When we arrived, they they have what they call process station. When when we landed, they took us on a ferry. It was nice to feel the sea beneath us. Yeah. Yeah. We were received by the Marines who were screaming, shouting, and beating all the way from. As soon as we arrived until we brought to the facility, what they call the process station. At the process station, it was crazy, you know. We couldn't stand because there's no way you can stand. Because the cold in the in the airplane, the uh, the the beating, the we're sitting on the floor all the time and unable to I wasn't I wasn't able to, to walk. So 
they two of the soldiers uh, hold me up and they start cutting my clothes like so fast and they can injure the care. Although we're like while shackle chain hooded, there was like uh, my mouth was duct taped and everything is covered basically. And I was stripped naked and threw they threw me to somewhere like a bag and I feel like water and there's a lot of soap and there's like large cleaning brooms actually cleaning our butts for those. It was crazy, crazy. Everything was happening so fast, a lot. And even like my my brain, my mind couldn't even like keep up with the process. It just, you don't know where you're like lost. You're nowhere, nowhere, no status, no emotion. You cannot see, you cannot hear, you cannot smell, you cannot talk. You just feel uh, the pain. Even your body refused to feel anymore. And because every cell in our body is like screaming. Then we're taken from place to place. A lot of things they used to like, hours and hours sitting in our knees. They force us like two guards force you to sit in your knees. Then circle to the interrogation. Then I was dragged to my cell naked, to the cage actually in a cell. As soon as the guard landed on me, it was, you know, they put me on the floor and they settled on me, like six of them. It's like a message, you know, they treat people. And they start unshackling me and uh, uh, they took the uh, the hood, the goggles, the earmuffs. And I was left duct tape, you know, it was like, I couldn't see because bright light and being in the dark for long, it just like, and all of a sudden, really bright light. And also my eyes were swelling from the beating. <laughs> really big like frog. Took me a few hours to, to get like, to see around me. And all I can see, uh, you know, I was asking like, am I in hell? Am I dead? It like, is already dead? Because everything was happening so fast, so cruel. And uh, new place, new people. We can hear the shouting guard, shouting at everyone. And uh, when I uh, looked, I could see the orange figures around me, large of orange uh, figures. Second day, I could see all of us like shaved, you know, uh, pros everywhere, uh, blood. And you can see, you know, the, the, the beating was really hard and like, Swollen faces, split uh, uh, lips, process um, uh, everywhere. Actually, some of the uh, brothers couldn't even walk with the beating. So this is the first moment and night at uh, Guantanamo, and I didn't know where I was or until when or was going to happen to us. And we just waiting for the interrogators. Everything was designed that for interrogators to come to. They can started to extract the most inform, uh, important information that will save the galaxy from those, the worst of the worst. We were deemed to be the worst of the worst terrorist killers, the most vicious killers on uh, planet. So some of the guards were even terrified of us because they told them, if you take your eye one second, they can split your neck. They are highly trained, professional killers. <laughs> you know, when I start learning about the stuff, I was laughing and feeling bad, laughing, sometimes crying, you know. When I was talking to the guards later on in 30 years, I said, guys, look, I am a fucking <laughs> professional vicious killer. Be careful. Come on, for, for you, I know one. <laughs> because the guards live with us for years and years. They know who we are. They know our fights. They know our behavior. Because when someone lives with you for a year, 
They watch you 24 hours, eating, drinking, shitting, whatever you do. So I thought, guys, do you know who I am? Yeah, you are for, for, for one. I said, no, I'm not for, for one. I'm, I'm the worst of the worst. Yeah, come on, man. Said, yeah, this is the truth. <laughs> so we we start making joke about it because even the girls, the first gar- time they came to Guantanamo, so when they the first came, they were so terrified. They used to take them to 9-11 Square and told them the one who did this at Guantanamo. And be careful, they are killers, they are you know smart, they like so the guy was terrified. So when the guards used to arrive, they say, Hi guys, welcome. I have been waiting for you guys. And I could see the guards like something gets shocked, you know, someone like, I'm waiting for you guys. I said, Nice to meet you. And so sometimes I try to break, you know, the, this kind of like barrier, a fear, a barrier of fears just to tell them the message. That's who we are, you no know, people. You know, a few months, take maybe a couple months, the guards sterilizing these and the people we, they were told about. So we've, with many of the guards, we forged really strong uh, friendship because as a soldier, as a trained soldier, you kind of spot who's bad, who's good, and who's a killer, who's not. So sometimes I told them, he is like your general for, for one. Uh, come on, come on, man, this is paper. I said, this is who I am. I'm, I'm a part of general. I am not, I am a commander now. So we developed also some kind of sense of humor at Guantanamo with, with each other and brothers and guards. What I can say also that not just detainees who are victims of Guantanamo, also the guards and some, 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 uh, some kind of staff who also were victims of Guantanamo machinery, they forced to do things they don't believe on. And they were forced to, to torture and abuse some prisoners. You know, uh, I don't want to be in their shoes because not anyone can stood or no one, like they have like as, Military, they have to follow the orders. I'm not making an excuse for them, but what I want to say that even those people were victims. American justice was also victim of the policy that conducted Guantanamo. Guantanamo is an idea that it's not just a place, you know, that created outside of the legal, of the system, of the justice system. And Guantanamo represents, uh, as you know, for the last 20 years, oppression, injustice, lawlessness, abuse of power, and uh, uh, injustice in most part. And, and 20 years of indefinite detention. Imagine if 18, 20, or 25 years uh, or men kidnapped, American basically, kidnapped, tortured, abused, indefinite detained, punished for practicing the religion, how American would react? If like people were Americans, not the Arabs. So basically, what they like, all of us were Muslims. And uh, as you see, there is a lot of secrecy around uh, Guantanamo. The government tell you what they want to tell you. So I wrote my book, try to take to take the readers inside Guantanamo to tell stories about the life we share there. I, I intentionally tried not to focus on torture or abuses, just to bring mostly on the life of within Guantanamo. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was amazing. That was inspiring. That was infuriating. I can't believe that these people, after going through the literal torture that they went through, uh, I can't believe that the United States is, well, I can. They're so shameless that they don't do anything to help pay any, make any amends, pay any reparations. I mean, these people leave this torture center and they still don't even have their basic rights. They should be not having to worry about any of that stuff at all. I mean, they should be receiving reparations. It's just, it's disgusting. It's hard to put into words, you know, and one thing there's so much like, um, 
criminality to discuss when you're talking about Guantanamo that it gets overlooked that this gulag is in Cuba. And it's not Cuba that is torturing prisoners. It's the U.S. that is torturing prisoners. And why is the U.S. even doing it there? Cuba doesn't want to have a U.S. torture site in its country. It's because the U.S. basically has taken that territory from Cuba and won't, and won't give it back. It's just one more absurdity of this whole thing. And it's just amazing that anybody in the U.S. government can even think about opening their mouth to lecture other people about human rights when stuff like this is still happening and people like Mansoor have not been compensated for the hell that they went through. The combination of this and Julian Assange basically means that the United States has to just never op- should never open its mouth about anything related <laughs> to human rights, civil liberties, free press. I mean, it's it, it's a disgusting Kafka-esque system that they created. They haven't done anything to acknowledge that mistake. The people who survive there are still living incredibly difficult lives. It's like the opposite of what should be happening. And also, you know, the Center uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights, we should give them a shout out for all the work that they did. And the late Michael Ratner, um, rest in power, who was the uh, head of the CCR, the Center for Constitutional Rights, and also did so much for the brothers, as Mansur calls them, the brothers of um, uh, Gitmo, the men inside of Gitmo. And big wag of the finger, if we're going to give them a shout out, we should give a wag of the finger to the uh, Red Cross, which, as Mansoor uh, details in his book, was really there just to legitimize Gitmo. They didn't speak out on behalf of the prisoners. They would just tell them to drink water and eat their food so they wouldn't drop dead. So they should actually, they get a lot of donations. They should just pay those donations forward to the survivors of Gitmo, who they sold down the river, who they threw under the bus. And maybe a Barack Obama should give some of his uh, vast fortune to yeah. the prisoners of Guantanamo who, you know, despite his promises to close Guantanamo, it stayed open under his watch. And he's since leaving office become a very, very wealthy man. So he can afford yeah. to uh, compensate the people whose torture he oversaw. He should actually just get out of his um, Martha's Vineyard mansion and let like cage that organization that Mansoor is part of, they should take that over, have like a residency program there, an artist in residency or just a set. I mean, yeah, it's, it's absurd. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And then of course, as you guys discussed, um, Yemen of course is under attack by the, by Saudi Arabia with the support of the United States, you know, Joe Biden rebrand, he didn't, he didn't stop that war. He kind of rebranded it. Um, but it's, on top of all that he's gone through, he can't see his family. Serbia. I mean, he has to be in Serbia of all places. Believable. And yet, look at him. He still maintains such a uh, a warmth. And uh, he still, as he talked about, maintains his humanity. It's um, Yeah. And optimism. It's pretty, and it's pretty inspiring. It puts things, yeah. it helps put things. Not that he's there for us to like, you know. <laughs> uh get yeah. perspective on our own lives yeah. that's not, but it, it it does help it does so very grateful to him for uh joining us and uh his book is really something special it's, yeah it's a great recommend read. It. yeah all right so make sure that you um become uh substack supporters because then you'll see you'll get to access the extended interview that we did with Mansoor, and also you get to access the shows without any ads if you become substack supporters that's just at usefulidiots.substack.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube. 
which is youtube.com slash useful idiots. Hit subscribe and hit the bell. Also, another reason that you're going to want to join Substack is that we're starting to release the audio of our Monday mornings live streams. So that means that as people may know, on Monday mornings, we do a Monday morning, M-O-N-D-A-Y-M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, which is where we go over the Sunday morning shows that we watch so you don't have to. So we're going to start releasing the audios from that for uh, Substack subscribers. Also, major breaking news coming from Spotify. You can now rate and review. So please go and rate and review us on Spotify. Leave a nice review. Give us a bunch of stars. Do the same thing on iTunes if you haven't already done that. Wherever you listen to us, you can still do it all over the place. Like I listen to stuff on iTunes, but I what I would do if I were not me, well, actually what I still can do as me, because there's no law against this, I'll, I'll go into Spotify, leave a, a rate and review there. And I'll do uh, iTunes, leave a rate and review there. You guys wow. So Katie, you're saying me, me as the average audio content consumer, I have the opportunity now to not just rate and review useful idiots on iTunes, but on a whole different platform, whole Spotify different platform. as well. So Spotify won't report me to the police if I don't even listen regularly on Spotify, but I still leave a great review yeah, exactly. for useful idiots. Wow. Right. Because the review won't be like, I love listening to useful idiots on Spotify. That would be illegal to say. <laughs> that would be illegal. Yes. Yes. We can't suborn yes. We can't encourage that. No. Yeah. No, we, we can't cannot. encourage that. But you can yeah. say, you know, this is a great show. Yeah. And if you do commit perjury, we will not, we are not liable for your legal fees. Right. No, we're and not. Your, no. And whatever punishment that may ensue, including possibly being sent to Guantanamo Bay. I, I have yeah. to people warn people about that. Yeah. That, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. Can't wait for Mansur to see this, uh, this after show. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 